Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, who is deputy director of the Rudd Center and an expert in nutrition policies for children, schools, and communities. Uh, Marlene has had a very long history of, of studying these issues and has published some very influential papers over the years and has been quite involved in national nutrition policy discussions about nutrition for children. So welcome, Marlene. Great to be here. So I'd like to begin by talking about nutrition in schools, and I'm hoping you can set the stage for why it's so important to think about this. There's been a lot of attention to it over the years, and why should we care about it? Well, there has been a lot of attention to nutrition in schools, and I think one of the reasons is pretty straightforward. It's because that's where children spend most of their time when they're not at home. And because parents are not able to necessarily influence what their children have in schools, the schools are really in a unique role where they need to take on some of that responsibility. Um, One of the things that's interesting about the school food environment is it's actually regulated at several different policy levels. So first there's the federal policy level, which regulates the National School Lunch Program. But what most people don't understand is that they only regulate the foods that are actually served as part of the official school lunch, that many other foods that are sold through vending machines or a la carte lines in school stores are actually not regulated at all. Then there's the state level, where many states in our country, especially in recent years, have decided to pass laws about what else could be sold in schools in some of those other areas. And then finally, there's the local level, which is where school wellness policies come into play, where each school district is supposed to set their own rules about what can be sold in schools. Well, let's talk about how schools have changed, because it seems to me that schools were the first frontier of the nation addressing the the obesity problem and that the schools are fundamentally different now than they were just a short number of years ago. But if you go back even before then, if I think about what schools were like when I was a kid, you know, there I don't think there were any vending machines in schools at all. There was a school lunch, that was it. There were no such things as snacks. Um, and uh, the, the school, you know, maybe they weren't the tastiest meals in the world, but they were at least what was consistent with nutrition standards at the time. And then schools underwent a big change where they became very commercialized and things. I'd like your opinion about what schools were during that era and what they've started to look like now. Sure. If you were to graph the school food environment, it would, in terms of its nutritional quality and time, is it would be like a U-shaped curve. That back when I was in school as well, the only foods they sold were really part of the school lunch. And if you were thirsty, you could either get milk or water at the water fountain. And then in the 90s, um, there started to be a huge effort on the part of particularly um, beverage companies and sort of packaged snack food industry to try to get into schools. And so what you saw during that period was a huge increase in the amount of snack foods and sodas that were sold in schools through vending machines, through the national, you know, sort of in the cafeteria, not part of the national school lunch, but sold alongside it. And those are called competitive foods because essentially they compete with the school lunch. And then what happened was there was then this huge reaction to the fact that kids were going into school and it was like they were um, you know, exposed to the same amount of the sort of stuff that you would find in a convenience store. And parents and teachers started to get upset. And now it feels like it's turning around. We're still not back where we were. Um, there's a huge fight going on where 
the um, makers of these products are working extremely hard to convince the public that they can make healthier versions of the products and that they should be allowed to sell those in schools. Um, a lot of uh, people want to sort of compromise on that because the schools can benefit from the revenue of selling these products. But from my perspective, there's really no there's no need to compromise. There's no justification for compromise. I think that the school should be a place that parents can send their children and simply not worry that their child's going to be exposed to anything but the most nutritious products. So my hope is that we are going to see in the next several years a return to an environment where really all of the foods that are sold and served are healthy foods. And those sort of snacks and, you know, what the companies like to call fun for you foods are things that that the children have outside of school. So what do you think about industries, and you referred to this a little bit already, but industries' pledges to regulate themselves in schools, like the beverage industry will say, well, we pulled a lot of our products out of schools and the number of calories we're shipping to schools has gone way down. Do those ring empty or are those meaningful changes? Well, I'd say that they're somewhere in between. I've looked really carefully at the reports that have come out from the American Beverage Association. And and to their credit, they did have an outside researcher, someone from Georgetown, do a evaluation of the, the records that they had from the bottling companies that talked about what was shipped to schools. Now, there are a lot of caveats in terms of incomplete data and things like that, but but either way, they have substantially decreased the number of calories that are shipped to school. So I want to give them credit for that. At the same time, if you look really carefully through the numbers, um, one of the things that I was particularly disappointed to see was they have quite strict standards for what can be sold in elementary school and middle schools. And yet when you look at what's still being sold there, basically... Um, 40% of what's still being sold is not meeting those standards. So, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's better than it used to be, but at the same time, it is a far cry from where it should be. And what I always think about is here in our state of Connecticut, where we actually have a state law that is very strong, that basically the only things you can sell in Connecticut are water, 100% juice, or um, milk. None of those products, there are no sports drinks, there are no low-calorie sports drinks, there's no diet soda, regular soda, all those things that people are negotiating about are simply not here. And because it's a state law, I think it's respected in a way that these these sort of self-regulation pledges just don't quite reach that implementation stage. So I've heard some people claim that what the companies seek most in the schools is the opportunity for branding. It's just getting the brand out in front of the children and that that's more important to them than just the sales of things. What do you think about that? I think that that has to be true because when you talk to the um, companies about taking their products out of schools, one of their defenses is we don't even sell that much in schools. It's a very small portion of our sales to which I respond, well, then why are you fighting so hard? Then just give it up and you know work on selling your product somewhere else. So really the only rational explanation is that they're keeping it in schools 
not just for getting the brand in front of children, but for doing it in the place where children are supposed to feel safe. I mean, this is where essentially the government mandates that they go every single day. Their parents support them going there. They're supposed to be learning. They're supposed to trust their teachers, you know, to tell them the truth. And when you take a particular brand and put it in front of the child in that very setting, I feel like you're really maximizing the chance that the child will see that brand as, you know, wholesome, safe, good for me, something I should be doing. And I think that's the part that the companies know about and that the school kind of doesn't want to acknowledge because if they did, they would realize that it was absolutely inappropriate for them to have any commercial products in there at all. One bit of government involvement in this whole process has been around the concept of school wellness policies. And you've done some very interesting research on this. Could you describe what these wellness policies are? Sure. Um, Back in 2004, there was a piece of federal legislation called the WIC Reauthorization Act. And basically, that did a number of things with federal food programs. But one of the things it did is it required that every school district in the country have a written school wellness policy in place by the 2006-2007 school year. And so when we learned about this, we were very interested in seeing what those policies looked like because the law specified areas that the policy had to cover, such as nutrition standards, physical activity, and evaluation, but it didn't actually say what the policy content needed to be. So my original concern was that districts that had a lot of resources and had parents who really cared and teachers who really cared would end up having really strong policies, and districts that didn't have the same type of resources and maybe were preoccupied with bigger problems like violence or drugs may end up with really weak policies. And so my concern was that this would actually increase disparities between wealthy and less wealthy districts. So we did a study here in Connecticut to test that hypothesis. And interestingly, we were exactly wrong. It turned out, uh, much to our surprise, that in our state, which was a good place to test it because we have a huge range of socio-demographic districts profiles in our state, we found that the um, districts that were actually uh, the ones that had the highest rate of free lunch, the you know most um, number of minorities in the in the district, and sort of the lowest resources actually ended up with the best policies. And in fact, the strongest policy was right here in New Haven, which was a complete you know surprise to us as we were analyzing the data. And then in contrast, the districts that we think of as the more wealthy districts, where um, there's really very low rates of free lunch and there's very high median income, actually had the weakest policies. And so what it made us start to think about was that there was something else influencing these local policies. And because when we were looking at this, um, we had just had an election, it occurred to me that there may be something political going on, that it may not just be about school food, but it may be about political sort of ideology and feeling about what is government's role and what is the school's role in setting rules about things like what kids should be eating. And so we actually tested that hypothesis by looking at the proportion of Democrats to Republicans in every district. And much to our amazement, that turned out to be the best predictor. So in fact, regardless of income or race, we found that 
districts that had the highest proportion of Democrats were the ones with the strongest policies. Now, the sort of sad news is that that has continued to be a theme when you look at school wellness in our country, that as recently as last year when the new um, USDA school food guidelines came out, it really became a political issue and it became a situation where a lot of um, politicians really felt that this was overreached by the government and that they really wanted government to back off and allow them to weaken the standards. So it's unfortunate that something as important as our children's health and the quality of the food they're eating is becoming sort of a weapon in a political debate, but that seems to be where we are right now. So how closely do these policies relate to what actually goes on in the schools? Because it could just be a document that sits in a drawer. Well, we were also very interested in that question. And so what we did is we coded the policies using a um, system that we came up with to see how strong they were, how strong the language was, and whether it said something like, you know, this district will provide, you know, 100 minutes of physical activity a week, or if it said something like, we strive to provide our students with ample opportunity for physical activity, which is another type of statement you would see. And then we actually compared it to what happened in the school. So we had data from principals um, in schools throughout the state telling us exactly what was happening in their school, both before and after these policies went into effect. And we also had data from food service directors about what they were selling in the cafeteria before and after. And what we found was that the strongly written policies were much more likely to show real changes on the ground and real improvements so that those schools ended up having a better environment than the districts that maybe had a great you know, sort of aspiration in their policy, but didn't really put teeth behind the words that they used. Okay, so I, you partially addressed one question I had about whether these, having a good policy leads to changes in the schools or whether the two are just correlated with one another. Schools that are doing the best are going to create the best policies? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think that there certainly are school districts that are more advanced in their thinking, that whether it's through a superintendent or a school principal or even some really active parents, that it's an issue that's been in discussion. And so I think those districts are definitely ready to make changes and therefore write stronger policies. But at the same time, what you have to remember is that the school district changes every single year that you know you've got kids coming in and kids going out so in that way it's very much a changing growing organism and that's why it's so important to get this stuff down in writing because you could have um, you know parents that you know like myself when my kids were in elementary school it's now been many many years since my kids were in elementary schools but the policies that were put in place during that time are still there and so it doesn't depend on a, a sort of active parent or a particular administrator. So do you see the future of schools and nutrition being a positive one? Are you witnessing good changes that you can be optimistic about? I, I am optimistic. I mean, I tend to be optimistic in general, but I really do feel that schools are kind of the easiest case to make in terms of where we have to do the very best by our children. That, you know, we can argue about what people should be doing in their homes or what should be happening in movie theaters, but you really can't argue that schools are sacred in a kind of, you know, special way and that we need to do our best there. And I've seen huge changes. I mean, when 
you know, when I first got interested in this, there were still soft drink machines in the schools in my town. There were all kinds of parties and celebrations. There was, you know, lots and lots of unhealthy snacks being sold to, you know, kindergartners and first graders. So all of those things have changed. And it's been a combination of state law changing, local districts changing, and a lot of you know, people pushing really hard at the local level to make these changes. I think that's going to keep happening. I think that the most efficient way for it to happen, though, is to get more done at the state level. It's really difficult to have every single district in a state fight this battle over and over again. Um, So if states can do things like Connecticut or California, where they really pass strong legislation, it can make a big difference in a much shorter period of time. Now, I know you and your colleagues have assembled a lot of information at the Red Center website on the school wellness policies and on school issues in general. Where could people find that information? Well, you can certainly go to our regular website address, www.yaleredcenter.org. But we also have a special website um, for what we call the WellSat, which stands for Wellness School Assessment Tool. And that's www.wellsat.org. And that's the website where you can actually take your policy of your school district and evaluate it using the measure that we've developed. And you will answer certain questions about your policy, you'll get a score, and then you will get a printout that tells you all the ways in which you could try to strengthen the parts of your policies that aren't as strong and gives you resources that you can use for that. So if a parent or teacher or just somebody in the community wanted to find out what their school wellness policy is, how would they go about finding it? Well, the best way to start is to look at the website of your school district. Um, The new federal rules that are coming out now as the school lunch um, sort of rules have been updated, one of the pieces of information that has changed is that schools are now supposed to put it on their website. It's supposed to be publicly available, which wasn't the case before. So I would recommend that people go to your school district website, look around. If you can't find it, contact the superintendent and ask to see it. It's a public document. It is federally required. And most of the national research has shown that most school districts are have gotten on the ball and have these available. So um, if it's not obvious where it is from the website, just call the superintendent. Well, I'm really happy to end on an optimistic note that you're expecting positive changes in the future. It feels that way to me, too. But it's nice to hear from the person who's the expert on the topic. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So our guest was Marlene Schwartz, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Uh, For information on this and other podcasts and a variety of other resources that we provide at the Rudd Center, please visit our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org. Thank you.